and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution and its staff and its research benefits people and communities both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by John McKendrick, a professor in social justice at the university and the co-director of the Scottish Poverty and Inequality Research Unit. John, thank you very much for talking to me today. Thanks, Greg. Pleasure to be asked. How have you been finding the past seven weeks? How's things been? Got to be careful, Craig, because my wife's sitting right next to me just now. I could really put myself in a bit of trouble here. I mean, it's it, there's good and bad. The, the, the bad for me is I, I missed my mum's proper 70th birthday. We had to do that by Zoom. That was very unfortunate. Um, I'm, I'm missing the wider family, of course. Mm-hmm. But there's also some pluses. I mean, I, I think uh, we're finding time together that we didn't have beforehand. You know, in your busy lives, you tend to take things for granted. So... We're getting ourselves out a daily walk. We'll have worked our way through the nine Star Wars films uh, as of last night. And we're, we're learning how bad a loser I am at board games as well. <laughs> it's always a good way to, to find out who your friends and the family are. I think Monopoly is always the one that really sorts, uh, sorts out. But today, John, we're going to focus on your research. And a lot of your research focuses on poverty in Scotland. So I suppose the best place to start is with quite a big question. What is poverty? How do we define it? You know, there's a simple answer, and it's simply about not having enough. Now, it gets very complicated beyond that, but that's at the root, of, uh, the root of the issue, is just simply not having enough, and not having enough according to the standards of the day. So what we're not talking about here is we're talking about comparing ourselves to somebody that living in, in Scotland in the 1700s. We're thinking about what's decent in Scotland in the 21st century, and simply not having enough money to allow you to live a very basic, decent standard of living here in Scotland uh, in the here and now. And unfortunately, far too many of people in Scotland find themselves in that situation. So how big an issue is poverty in Scotland then, John? Well, the, the government's estimates, and we're talking here pre-crisis, because who knows what it's like today. Uh, but the government's estimates, it was, it was hovering around about the million mark. And that's roughly about one in five citizens in Scotland living in poverty at the current time. Not having enough money to allow themselves to live a decent standard of living. So how do we measure poverty then? What are the metrics involved? Yeah, well, there is a complicated way of measuring, necessarily complex because we want to get the numbers right. It basically involves taking a sample of the UK population, or for Scotland, a sample of the Scottish population, uh, working out how much income the typical person has. And then if you fall so far below, as a household, so far below that typical level of income, we consider you to be living in poverty. In terms of nuts and bolts, it's 60%, three-fifths of what a typical household income is in Scotland. If you've got less than that, you're living in poverty. So how many people in Scotland are experiencing poverty? Well, the Scottish government's estimates uh, are about a million people at the current time. Um, and that, see, current time, that's using data prior to the, the current crisis. So they estimate about a million people. Um, you know, that's a, a, a ridiculous number for an advanced economy like ours in the 21st century. Are the Scottish government doing enough to ease poverty, do you think? I think in fairness to the Scottish government, they're most certainly aware of the problem. And perhaps unlike the UK government, uh, they have a target to eradicate child poverty by 2030. And have taken some steps to try and make a difference for that particular population group. So, for example, we have the Scottish Child Payment um, that was uh, conceived then to bring more income to the very poorest families, which is not something that uh, we find south of the border. And they've also challenged Scottish local authorities to come up with their own local strategies to maximise the resources available locally uh, to tackle po- child poverty in Scotland. But they could do more. Uh, I think it's fair to say that um, if we are really serious about tackling poverty, everybody has, has to ratchet up 
their actions a few notches from where they are just now. Well, I want to talk about some of your research, John, that, that looks at uh, recommendations for, for the government and for local authorities to, to try and ease poverty. But we'll talk about the, the current climate with the coronavirus. How difficult is it for people experiencing poverty now? Well, we're beginning to get intelligence through on that, and a number of local uh, organi- local and national organisations in Scotland are, are now beginning to share information about the lived experience at the current time. Um, there is the Glasgow Disability Alliance have, have profiled the experiences of, of disabled groups in, in Scotland. Child Poverty Action Group Scotland are just about to canvas, and the Food Foundation have been looking at, at specific issues to do with food over the last few weeks. So there's a knowledge base building up, and unfortunately our knowledge base is very much as we expect. The, the very most, most vulnerable in our society, uh, their vulnerability has increased at the current time. There's also some concerns about education and learning. Despite schools embracing learning technology, I think the reality is, as we're beginning to find out, is that not everybody is well placed to utilise that technology. So the government, Scottish government's uh, concern then to narrow the attainment gap, to close the attainment gap in schools, really going to become a problem looking ahead. Because if anything, I think the, what's likely to have happened over the last few weeks, and this is speculation, it's not evidence, is that that attainment gap, if anything, will be widening rather than closing at the current time. So things are tough and they're getting tougher at the current time, despite the actions that have been taken to try to soften the blow. You've talked about schools there, John, but what about other elements of society? How are they being affected by the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, very much. I mean, you, you're, you're, uh, we know, for example, that the risk from coronavirus itself is hitting the, the elderly more proportionately as a population group, they are more vulnerable. But we also know in terms of, of the, the demographics and household structures that, that many of our elder citizens that are living in, the, in, a, in a family home are likely to be living alone, living in small groups, and life is much, much tougher for them then. So as well as this heightened vulnerability and, and, and the fear that comes with what COVID-19 presents, we also have the, the issue then about everyday life, the, you know, the, the lack of ability to maintain that social circle, which is absolutely vital to people, of course. We're, we're social beings. You know, we're not Ottomans. We, we need other people in order to enjoy life and to function effectively. And many people don't have these networks. At the same time, what happens, of course, is, is we respond, as communities we respond, as neighbours we respond, as wider family groups where we're able, we, we respond and support as well. So for every bad news story or every worry we have there, there's, all, there's also a good news story about somebody doing something for the benefit of others. If you like, in terms of GCU's language, there's plenty of people doing lots for the common good at the current mm-hmm. time. What the impact that the pandemic's having on stuff like parents working from home, children who are off school, children who rely on free school meals, what's the impact on them? Again, this is highly variable. It depends what what type of parent you are in your circumstance. Now, I've I, I personal experience of that. I've got a 10-year-old daughter in the house, two working parents. Uh, the schooling is different. It, it's juggling and it allows her far more time to do a little bit of craft and a little bit of looking on the uh, the iPad than perhaps you would you would normally get, but for us it's okay. We can manage it. You know, we have one daughter at ten years old, or two working adults, and between the two of us, we've got a nice balance. Where Morvin gets the exciting learning, she gets the kind of stuff she likes less, but she gets enough over the course of a week. But it's completely different for others. I mean, there are some parents that are maybe not best placed to be educators themselves, and that will be a challenge. Full stop for them. Even understanding the tasks that are been asked of their children will be difficult for that parent to pass on. There might be a number of children in the household uh, all vying for use of the one uh, bit of technology that allows them to engage with their learning. There might be a number of children in a house, which is fine perhaps in a, 
a typical everyday environment, but when you're talking about you can't leave the house unless for, for the purposes of uh, limited exercise per day, the stresses build up within there. So it's highly uneven. Uh, there are some who will be able to cope. Uh, there are some that might even thrive and excel at this current time by able to spend that little bit more time intensively with their child. But there'll be many who don't. There'll be many who struggle. And there'll be many who will feel bad about that as well. They, they, you know, being a teacher is not something that just happens. It's, it's a skill. It's something that people learn for four years training. And, and there's constantly development to, to enable them to teach effectively. It doesn't come naturally to everybody. So you, you do feel for the parents that have to manage this learning. You feel for the children in situations where their learning is, is compromised and complex. And you also feel for the teachers because, I mean, my daughter's a teacher. And I know how difficult she is finding it at the current time, not being able to provide that support, guidance and enjoyment that she gets from working with kids. So highly uneven. We've talked about kids at school. What about school leavers? There'll be fewer opportunities for them to take up work or to take up apprenticeships. What do you see happening for them? Yeah, I mean, who knows what lies ahead in terms of the economy? We have major adjustments ahead and, and how we come out of this is, is, is certainly something that's not straightforward or given. You know, we will not be moving back to the reality that we had beforehand. So, for the, you know, opportunities will be uneven again. You know, I don't think there'll be a glut of opportunities. I think it'll be very difficult for this generation leaving. I think I feel for them just now as well. I mean, teenagers, perhaps even more so than younger children, uh, need their friends. You know, it's how they build their identities. It's what their lives are about. And the, the constraints that they face, it must be so difficult for them. And it's all well and good having your, you know, your, your internet technologies, face technologies to contact your friends. We, we criticise them for having their head in the, the screens most of the time. But, you know, they were missing that interaction just now. Life is really tough for them at the current time and won't be any clearer what lies ahead when we move beyond this. Well, you've kind of said that you, you don't really have full pictures to what things are going to look like in four or five months down the line, but do you have, can you speculate as to what it will look like? Well, I'm hoping, and, and you know, the optimist in me hopes that we can learn some lessons about values and what's important uh, at this current time. And I think there's lots of examples of that. Um, you know, if we are a little bit less self-oriented, if we're a little bit less concerned about, you know, our own personal well-being and, and think a little bit more broadly, a little bit about others, and realise the time, uh, the enjoyment that we get by spending time with our, our close family and, and what we missed about our, our, our friends, I think we could maybe move forward with a better mindset. But in terms of economy, of course, it's going to be really tough. There are some whose livelihoods are very uncertain. I mean, the, the, the hospitality industries, for example, yeah. a staged return is not necessarily something that's feasible or desirable for, for those working in hospitality. And, and that's really going to have significant ramifications for those careers that are in that sector or those who are in that sector for a temporary time uh, before moving on to, to something else. So, I mean, great uncertainty for, for some people. Um, and even those that are moving back to the reality that was beforehand, it'll be, it'll be still different times. We'll talk about some of the research you've worked on during your time at the university, John. And one of the things I want to talk about is something last September, you warned that child poverty in Scotland was likely to increase unless radical action was taken by local authorities and health boards. You broadly praised the work of the 32 local authorities, but said a bolder approach is required. Can you talk about that? Yes, I mean, we, we know that if the current trends, and let, we're talking pre-coronavirus um, pre here, if the current trends uh, were to continue, then we would be very unlikely to eradicate child poverty by 2030. So we already had tough decisions to take. If we were serious about meeting these national targets that we are legally obliged to meet, it's a statutory requirement in Scotland, our, our parliament has legislated to eradicate child poverty by 2030. So if we're serious about doing that, we already had to do much more than we were. 
And I think it was fair to say that we were in the preparatory stages. Uh, local authorities had prepared their first year action plan, were reflecting on it, and would, I think, through time, refine that and focus on the, the actions that were having the biggest difference. But now things are all uncertain again. So I think the only thing that is certain is that we are, if we are serious about eradicating child poverty by 2030, we have to do much, much more than even we were planning to do beforehand. It will require a, a shift of resource. It will require you know, bending spend in, in ways that haven't been um, bent beforehand. And it will, again, uh, that collective sense of well-being, we have to just accept that. But I think if we want to eradicate child poverty, we have to have a flatter structure of rewarding society. It's not nice to hear it. I think there was a few generations ago we felt that that wasn't an issue that everybody could gain and gaps could be closed. It's not the reality. I think we have to have a flatter structure of reward. Uh, we have to look after our most vulnerable much better than we have in, in recent years if we're going to reach these targets. Before we move on, John, just child poverty, that's a phrase that's come up a few times during this podcast. What do we mean by child poverty? Is that different to the, the broader definition of poverty? No, we, we, de we define it in the same way. So it's all about living in households. So the, the child poverty is about if a child is living in a household whose income is inadequate to allow them to have a decent standard of living, we classify them as living in poverty. And it would be the same for the adults in that household too. So we, we use a household-based measure to to estimate poverty. Of course, there are, are indicators that we use by proxy. So entitlement to free school meals has been in the past used as an indicator of local child poverty. There are problems with that, uh, but it's a decent enough local measure to get a sense of uh, what the uneven challenges are, perhaps across a city, a town or a local authority. You also discovered that there are pockets of poverty in some of the most affluent areas in Scotland. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I mean, it also almost seems counterintuitive that if you think of a Mogai or a, you know, a Bear's Den, um, a Bishop Briggs, that there might be poverty in these areas. But we know that there are. If we look at the evidence, the evidence tells us that there are. Now, it's most certainly the case that levels of poverty are much lower in affluent areas, but they are still there. They are present. They're present in small pockets. They're very often hidden. Uh, and that makes it much more difficult for us to direct resource to deal with that. And people experiencing poverty in affluent areas are no less deserving of, of support no less deserving of the chance to leave a life behind of poverty than somebody living in a, in a multiply deprived area. But the challenge of reaching out to people in affluent areas, like rural areas as well, is much more difficult. I think there's a perception with poverty that it's only really experienced by, say, like unemployed people or people with long-standing health problems. But that's not always the case. So such a thing as in-work poverty. Can you explain what that term means? Yeah, I mean, let, let me give you a number first and then, then, then an explanation. Two-thirds of children in Scotland at the current time who live in poverty are living in a household in which at least one of the adults is doing some form of paid work. So two-thirds of children, the vast majority of children living in poverty are living in a household where there is a working adult. So that's the reality of poverty today. And it's simply that work is not rewarding enough. It's either not paying highly enough or there's not enough work um, for the parents uh, to earn an income that moves their household beyond poverty. And that almost seems counterintuitive because the logical common sense explanation we've heard for years, and to some extent it is the, the, the key uh, passage from poverty, is to get ourselves work that pays enough. Uh, it's what politicians have told us is, is, is should be the societal goal. And I think in the last uh, decade or so, uh, the politicians have prided themselves on the participation in the labour market and the number of people that are working in the labour market mm, yeah. but the reality is that for many the labour market means that they are living a life with work poverty in work poverty rather than leaving poverty behind and it's simply the case as I say that work is not paying for everybody at the current time. 
What can we do to ease that, John? Is things like the, the living wage, does that pay enough? Living wage is a great idea. You know, if, if we pay people um, for a, a, at a level that allows them to live a decent standard of living, that's a great thing. But in and of itself, it's not enough. Because if you pay a living wage, but maybe only offer uh, five hours worth per week, or you're uh, working in a, a zero hours contract, and you're not even sure how many hours worth you're going to get a week, then the living wage is useful, but it's never going to be enough to move you from poverty. You need security of income, you need security of hours of work. So we have to think, completely rethink the, the, the way that work uh, works for all. Uh, that might mean much more radical solutions than we've had in the past. It might mean things such as a basic income, it might mean much more flexibility between uh, a world of work and a, and a world of, of support. There are many ways in which I think we can rethink how work pays. But what is clear just now is that far, for far too many workers not paying. You mentioned at the top of the podcast, John, that you're the co-director of the Scottish Poverty and Inequality Research Unit, SPIRU, at Glasgow Caledonia University. Can you talk to me about SPIRU? Yeah, I mean, we've had a long tradition of research at Caledonia University of researching poverty. There was an, an earlier version of SPIRU that, that for many years uh, was the leading force in bringing to the public's attention the Scottish dimension of child poverty. It existed to share information about poverty at a time that there wasn't a lot of information available and, and give a particular Scottish bent on that information. We build on that tradition. Uh, what we do is we do applied research. Uh, we're interested in ideas because that's what academics do, but um, we're also interested in contributing towards or supporting those that are taking actions locally and nationally here in Scotland and beyond to tackle poverty. Uh, working with those in local government, working with those in the third sector, uh, working with those in the NHS to think about the challenge that we collectively face and what specific contribution they can make uh, within their own limited realm and domain to that greater uh, cause of eradicating poverty and reducing inequality in society. So we very much see ourselves as a resource, a resource for Scotland um, to be used then to, to support the work of others who are taking concrete actions uh, out there to tackle poverty. Sounds like that sort of stuff will be very useful in the coming months then. Yeah, unfortunately so. You know, it would be fantastic if we were redundant. It would be a wonderful world if there were no need for John McKendrick or Stephen Sinclair of the Scottish Poverty and Inequality Research Unit. But I think the reality is there is at the current time. And therefore, it's right, I think, that any university that considers itself a a serious player for the common good uh, has got to be doing research in this area and using some of its uh, collective talent in the institution to help others to, to make a difference. Really sounds like, John, your work really embodies the Glasgow Caledonia University mission, you know, the university for the common good. You must take quite a lot of pride in the work that you do. Absolutely, and the work of the institution as well. I mean, I think it's it's right that, that we do position ourselves in that way. That That's the contribution that we can make as a university. I'm very proud of the work that the, myself, colleagues, uh, undergraduates, postgraduates, uh, and peers make in research uh, in the area of, of tackling poverty and inequality. There's lots more for us to do, and there's, there's many others in Scotland and other universities that we work collaboratively that, that do excellent work in this field as well. And we're just happy to do our bit as well as supporting work for national government and, and local government. Uh, our students uh, every year do a, a group project and, and through work placement, our students come to the unit as trainee researchers and do a concrete real bit of um, research to support a organisation out there that's doing something to tackle child poverty. Uh, in recent years then, we've had group projects that have uh, been focused on school meals. We've done that to support uh, those in local government and the private sector who are delivering school meal services. and just helping them to better understand what the challenges are in this field. So I would also um, you know, like, like to acknowledge the work of our students uh, in this area, as well as the postgraduate students in their own research projects. 
as I say, it would be wonderful if we didn't have to, but the reality is that we do, uh, and um, it's what we do, it's what we're good at, and, and what we'll continue to do uh, as necessary. Away from the university, John, you're also a qualified football referee. Have you missed the sport at all? Oh, very much so. I mean, guilty as charged uh, is my guilty secret. Uh, I'm a, a referee in the, the, for the Scottish Football Association, have been for a number of years. I'm in the twilight years of my refereeing career, <laughs> and it's certainly not the way that anybody would want to go um, through coronavirus. It's we, we use Zoom. I mean, we're still doing training sessions as referees. Uh, Friday night there, um, half past seven, I was on a one and a half hour Zoom training lesson trying to learn from clips. We're, we're thinking of creative ways in which we can keep in touch and we're keeping ourselves in shape and that the hope uh, that football will resume sooner rather than later. But yeah, very much missing uh, missing football at the current time. Do you see any point when football will return? Uh, not soon. I mean, I'd, I'd love to be an optimist and, and you know send the messages that are coming down from down south or in continental Europe about football's on the horizon and we're, it's coming back. I think we've got far bigger challenges. And I know it's tough. I know that there are those, as well as the passion, as well as the the joy that the country gets from football, and as well as the fact that some people's livelihoods are dependent on football. It's not just a pleasure for some, but it's their workspace. I just don't, I can't foresee any way in which football can be brought back quickly at the current time. We're still, social distancing still very much to the fore just now, and it's so problematic to try and introduce football um, in a way that, that maintains the public safety and doesn't draw resources uh, away from the health sector as well. So I, I'm not by nature a Grinch or a pessimist, <laughs> but I don't see football returning anytime soon. Certainly not in the form that we knew it. You said you're in the twilight of your career. Say if football comes back in 2021, just off the top of my head, you think you'll still be refereeing at that point? I don't think I'll be refereeing at the highest level. I think I've probably had my, my time there. Um, what happens beyond that, though, is we, we don't just disappear into the ether as referees. We either um, find a different level of football to officiate at, uh, or we, we sit in the stand and we offer advice to young referees coming through. And, and one of those two will be the, the path that, that lies ahead for me. Not quite sure which one it will be. Um, I'm not really ready to give up that whistle yet. Um, so, you know, I might I might be found at a local park somewhere near you, ruining somebody's Saturday for a, for a few months yet. John, that's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Craig. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Craig. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and I hope you'll join us again soon when we'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening from. Until the next time, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast.